This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Military commanders don't operate on the basis of fiction. They operate on the basis of reality. Leon Panetta served as Secretary of Defense and Director of the CIA under President Obama. Understanding climate change had to be part and parcel of our effort to protect our security. The military has long seen climate as critical to its readiness, as Admiral David Titley explains. Readiness is the ability to make sure that when we put our sons and daughters, our soldiers, our sailors, our airmen and marines, in harm's way to protect our nation's interests, that they are going to be successful at that even when the other guy is either metaphorically or literally shooting at us. Climate and national security, up next on Climate One. I'm Devin Strolovich. Why has the U.S. military been one of the most eager adopters of renewable energy? If you could run those forward operating bases, let's say on solar, or let's say on wind, or efficient batteries, or some kind of combination, or just simply be more efficient, if you're directly connecting that renewable energy to decreasing the risk for American servicemen and women, increasing our combat effectiveness, the military's all in. Retired Rear Admiral David Titley served as a U.S. Naval officer for 32 years. In 2009, he initiated and led the Navy's Task Force on Climate Change. We'll hear Greg Dalton's conversation with Admiral Titley about climate change and military readiness later in the program. First, Greg talks to Leon Panetta, who served as Secretary of Defense and Director of the CIA under President Obama. Since retiring as Defense Secretary in 2013, Panetta has served as Chairman of the Panetta Institute for Public Policy at the California State University, Monterey Bay. Here's their conversation about climate change and U.S. national security. So what is the connection between climate change and national security? Climate change is thought about something far away in geography or time. What's the connection to U.S. national security? Well, I've always felt that uh, you can't really provide for the security of the United States without accepting reality. Uh, the reality of adversaries, the reality of competing economies, uh, the reality of uh, changing cultures, uh, and the reality of climate change uh, is something that I think also has to be recognized uh, as one of those things we have to confront now. And whether it's uh, increasing the number of droughts, whether it's increasing uh, the uh, rising oceans uh, that we're now seeing, uh, whether it's uh, the impact on weather systems, uh, the reality is that all of that impacts on people. And if people are finding it difficult for one reason or another, either to survive uh, or to have to change uh, where they exist because of uh, it's no longer viable for climate reasons, uh, then that creates instability. And we have to be aware of that instability and what those challenges are. And that's why I always believed as Secretary of Defense and also as Director of the CIA uh, that uh, understanding climate change and what was happening had to be part and parcel of our effort to protect our security. There was an 
article in the New York Times recently connecting drought in Guatemala. People have a choice. Their crops fail. They have a choice of going to the city. Maybe there's gangs or they go to El Norte, come up north. So how is this uh, migration of people? Maybe climate and drought is one factor. It's challenging democracies. It's challenging the European Union. It's challenging America as an open society. How are we going to deal with this movement of people across borders that are challenging our some of our core institutional Western values. Well, that's one of the fundamental issues uh, that uh, the world is trying to confront today. And uh, the problem is that because of that movement of people, uh, it is feeding the rise of populism. Uh, it's feeding authoritarian uh, governments. It's feeding uh, a, a counter-reaction among people that feel that that movement of people threatens them. Uh, in terms of their life and, and their livelihoods. And so uh, we are now witnessing this larger movement of people uh, through migrations for a lot of different reasons, part of it violence, part of it climate change, part of it, part of it uh, the impact of droughts and famine. The part of it, a part of it is just the economics of many of these countries in terms of uh, the poverty that they're enduring and trying to find a better life somewhere else. Uh, all of that is culminating uh, in this vast movement of refugees and the ability or inability of countries to deal with that, I think can very well be the precursor of conflict and violence. And, you know, we, we have to be very aware that these kinds of issues, if we don't deal with them in an orderly uh, and common sense and compassionate way, um, these issues will create conflict. And that's what I worry about the most because I sense the inability of countries to deal with this rationally and with common sense and compassion. I think the inability to do that is creating greater uh, disruption in terms of governments and peoples. And when disruption happens, when uh, we see instability in these countries, we are looking at the seeds of some kind of future conflict. So that is a very good example of one of the pressures uh, that is going to face leadership in the 21st century, whether leadership in these countries can confront that will tell us a lot about what the future holds. Last I checked, not a lot of migrants, immigrants going into Russia. Some people wonder whether Russia is a winner in a warmer world. They have, will be warmer. Some of their resources will be acceptable. Is Russia a winner in a warm and potentially destabilized West? I think there are times when we uh, overvalue uh, the authoritarianism of Russia and Putin, because while it may be easy for him to kind of dictate what Russia should or should not do, the reality is Russia's having a difficult time trying to provide any kind of uh, economic opportunity for its people. Uh, it's having a difficult time in terms of um, being able to promote the kind of values that people search for uh, when they're they're struggling 
to try to be able to have some influence over the direction of their nation. Um, so I, I, you know, I think that while initially one can argue that because uh, they're an authoritarian government and therefore can have greater control over their borders and what happens within Russia uh, by virtue of the positions they take, I think in the long term, countries like Russia, authoritarian countries like Russia, uh, ultimately will pay the same price that all authoritarian governments have paid throughout history, which is that by virtue of the inability to provide real opportunity to people, real economic progress, uh, and recognize kind of the human values that we have always recognized in the democratic world, I think ultimately uh, that will be something that will undermine their strength rather than improve it. One area that uh, is of concern potentially with Russia is the Arctic. And you've spoken about the warming Arctics. It's a region that not a lot of people paid much attention to. Suddenly it's more accessible, the Northwestern Passage. Now there's tourism. So what are the geopolitics regarding Russia and a, and a changing Arctic that suddenly has more value, perceived value? Well, again, that gets back to this fundamental issue of um, how climate change can impact uh, national security. Uh, the Arctic is probably one of the great examples of that. The melting uh, ice cap uh, is uh, now opening up uh, claims to... Uh, the Arctic region that are clearly going to produce a lot of contesting nations trying to, A, determine who gets a uh, first cut at the resources of the Arctic. Uh, secondly, who gets the opportunity uh, to be able to control the Northwest Passage and uh, the ships that are going to be passing there, the economic impact, the security impact, of that are all factors that uh, are taking place today at a time when, frankly, there has been a lack of diplomatic effort to try to foresee how should we resolve these issues? How should we try to determine uh, who, in fact, should have um, some role to play in what happens uh, in the Arctic? Instead, uh, because of the failure of international organizations, because of the failure of diplomacy, um, we're kind of uh, operating on an ad hoc, ad hoc basis right now. Uh, and the United States bears a lot of the responsibility. We are a country that normally has provided leadership on these issues. Uh, we are ones who have said, this is an issue that needs to be resolved peacefully. It needs to be resolved diplomatically. We need to have all of the parties at the table deciding how we deal with the changes that are taking place in order to make sure that it does not produce uh, the kind of conflict that could lead to war. Um, it's not only the threat of climate change, but it's also the threat of the lack of diplomatic leadership by the United States in particular to try to help resolve these issues peacefully. Um, those, those are real threats in today's world. Defense Secretary uh, Mattis has talked about untethering the U.S. forces from fossil fuels. How do you view the connection more on, on the battlefield, fossil fuels, supply lines, fuel convoys? How are they a vulnerability or an asset? 
It's a huge issue. Uh, and uh, when I was Secretary of Defense, uh, we were really trying to encourage, particularly the Navy, which depends so much on fuel for our, our fleet. Uh, the Navy was uh, really working at trying to develop alternative fuels. The Great Green Fleet, fighter jets, you know, with exactly. biofuels landing exactly. on... Exactly. I mean, I, the biggest issue for you know, a modern military force is uh, f supplying the fuel that is essential to, uh, you know, the weapons of war. That's a reality. Fuel convoys are great targets. Yeah, they're great, they're great targets. Uh, the dependence on uh, our ability to be able to fuel, uh, whether it's our uh, fighter planes, our bombers, uh, our ships, our tanks, uh, is, is critical to our war fighting capacity. Uh, and so it made a great deal of sense to begin this effort to try to get the Pentagon, DOD, to be able to move towards alternative fuels. Not only would that give us a greater capacity to be able to operate without these long lines of fuel supply that are essential in, in modern times, but it's also right for the world <laughs> in terms of being able to gradually move away from fossil fuels uh, and develop alternatives. And since the Pentagon is one of the biggest users of fossil fuel uh, in everything we do, uh, it made a hell of a lot of sense to, to have the Pentagon lead the effort uh, to move away from that. I've, I've actually seen uh, in, uh, in battle zone areas like uh, Iraq and Afghanistan where we were making real progress in the use of solar for communications purposes uh, and for uh, providing other means of power that, uh, you know, th that encouraged me that this isn't just fiction. This is, this is a real way to deal with a real problem. I've heard people talk about uh, diesel generators in the desert. They have a heat signature. They have a sound signature that makes basically saying, here we are, whereas solar and batteries are quiet. No, absolutely. Uh, every time you um, have an engine out there that's, gener you know, that's uh, using uh, fossil fuel, uh, there is clearly a signature that we can pick up. We can pick it up in space. We can pick it up using our intelligence capabilities. It becomes a, a clear target. Uh, and the ability to try to avoid that, I think, relates very much to uh, our ability to more effectively defend our forces when they are in these areas. You're listening to a conversation with former Defense Secretary Leon Panetta. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks how climate change threatens the stability that U.S. national security depends on. These vast migrations of people uh, in many ways due to uh, climate problems, to poverty, to uh, starvation, uh, to other factors that contribute to instability. That's what our adversaries care about. They are interested in producing instability. That's up next when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about climate change and national security with Leon Panetta, former Secretary of Defense and Director of the CIA under President Obama. Here's Greg. U.S. military was one of the first uh, organizations to recognize the greenhouse gas effect because it was recognized that 
the warming atmosphere could affect missile guidance and navigation systems back in the 50s. And uh, Secretary of Defense James Mattis has said, quote, climate change is impacting stability in areas of the world where our troops are operating today, end quote. And yet this administration doesn't recognize climate change. What's going on inside the military, you know, in terms of their pragmatism, planning for these things? Are they prohibited from doing the things you're talking about? Well, I know Jim Mattis. He, uh, uh, he served uh, as one of my combatant commanders when I was Secretary of Defense, and I have uh, tremendous confidence in his ability. He understands it. He gets it. He knows what uh, threats to our security are all about. And I think uh, even though he operates in an administration uh, that uh, oftentimes takes positions that are counter to, uh, to what I think Jim Mattis really believes uh, in terms of traditional national security policy, uh, that uh, he continues in his own way to try to make sure that uh, our security is protected. Uh, he, he obviously is in a, uh, it's in a, he's in a difficult position. Uh, because, uh, you know, he is, without question, extremely important to uh, decisions that affect our national security, uh, our deployment of forces, uh, the kind of uh, structure, force structure that we're going to have and maintain for the future. Uh, but at the same time, he believes deeply uh, in those realities I talked about at the beginning of this conversation. I mean... Military commanders, people who are good military commanders, uh, don't operate on the basis of fiction. They operate on the basis of reality. Uh, and Jim Mattis knows that climate change is real. He knows that it's impacting our security. He knows that it's important for the Pentagon and DOD to take steps to deal with that. And my sense is he's going to continue to do that, to try to uh, implement policies that will give us the best protection for the future. He'll try to stay below the radar. He'll try to avoid becoming a target for uh, tweets from the White House. Uh, he's been good at doing that so far. But Jim Mattis is somebody who's fundamentally dedicated to the best national security interests of our country. And I think he's going to continue to do that. I looked up some of your past comments on, on climate change and national security and clicked on the link, and those pages on the, the Department of Defense website no longer exist. Uh, <laughs> so uh, error 404. So there's been a scrubbing of climate change information. Yeah, yeah. And when you were, ran the CIA, helped develop, perhaps started capacity to understand climate as a security risk. Uh, some of that may have been disbanded. So how you know there's concerns about NASA satellite funding of, of observation data. How concerned are you about our intelligence gathering capability to know what's really happening out there in an administration that is scrubbing climate everywhere? Well, you know, I just think it's an example of, frankly, the stupidity of this administration if they think that simply wiping out terms that refer to climate change is somehow going to make the climate better. <laughs> <laughs> North Carolina, remember North Carolina <laughs> outlawed sea level rise once. So, <laughs> I mean, so it just uh, you know it doesn't make sense, uh, and I and I understand that kind of uh, ideological approach to the issue. If uh, if if the view is that it's not real, then you've got to 
you know, make sure that uh, nobody talks about it. But, you know, I, I think those who, for example, said that, um, you know, discrimination and segregation is not a real problem, uh, that we don't have to confront the issue of civil rights uh, and that hope that somehow people would kind of uh, accept that uh, were proven wrong uh, because that is not the course of history. And I think in this instance, it is not the course of history that we can just sit back and pretend that climate change is not happening. It is happening. It's a reality. Uh, and that one way or another, this country, whether it's under this president or another president, ultimately has to recognize the world for what it is. You were running the CIA when uh, there was an operation to get uh, Osama bin Laden uh, in, in Pakistan. Uh, and whenever there's a, a person with a backpack or tries, someone tries to light their shoes on fire and on an airplane, there's a face and a villain. One of the challenges of climate is there is no face of a villain with an intent to do harm. It's faceless. So how do we get at a challenge that doesn't have a black hat that we can go after? I often think that if, you know, if North Korean dictator was causing climate change, we'd be doing a lot more about climate change. Well, I think that's, that's true. I mean, I, cyber, I've often said, is the battlefield of the future. For a long time, people did not really take cyber seriously can't see it. It's hard to see. Yeah, it's hard to see. Uh, they know there's hacking going on. There's no, there's, uh, you know, there's some challenges to privacy. But the fact that cyber could be used not just to disrupt service, uh, that it could be used to steal intellectual property, but that cyber could be used to literally attack other countries and destroy their capabilities, uh, I think was underestimated for a long time. Uh, and now today we recognize that uh, the real threat uh, that uh, cyber can represent, not only uh, the way the Russians used it to undermine our election institutions, but the fact is you can now develop a sophisticated virus that could probably take down our electric grid system, our financial systems, our government systems, and really paralyze this country. I think the same thing is true for something like climate change. I think the reality is having seen these vast migrations of people uh, in many ways due to uh, climate problems, to poverty, to uh, starvation, uh, to other factors that contribute to instability, I think that our adversaries recognize that using that capability uh, could very well advance instability. And that's what our adversaries care about. We saw that with the Russians. We see that with the Chinese. We see that uh, with other adversaries. They are interested in producing instability. Uh, and they will produce instability through cyber. They will produce instability towards uh, doing something that can impact on the way we live. But unfortunately, uh, as I've often said to the students uh, at the Panetta Institute, uh, in our democracy, we govern either by leadership or by crisis. If leadership is not there, then make no mistake about it, crisis will ultimately uh, provide that direction. It's a terrible way to govern because uh, I think it, in many ways you lose the trust of the American people uh, when you govern by crisis. 
But I think today, right now, um, we are losing leadership on the issue of recognizing the threat uh, from climate change. And the result will be that at some point, crisis is going to drive that policy. And frankly, that is not a good way to govern. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Some of the elders on the Republican Party, George Schultz, uh, James Baker, have the Baker-Schultz plan, yeah. his carbon dividend plan. Recently, Trent Lott, former Senate Republican leader, came out in, in support of it. Do you see any chance of something like that taking hold? Because any Republican who's in elected office knows if they embrace that, they face a primary challenge from the right, just as others, Bob Inglis, former member of Congress, got Tea Partied out of Congress. So this gets to, you know, can reasonable policy, here we have the titans of the Republican Party from your era, Rob Walton, chairman of, of Walmart, supporting it, and yet it's having difficulty getting traction in Washington because of the system and the fear of a primary challenge. Well, you know, I've, I've, I've been in public life for uh, over 50 years. At one point in my life, I was uh, chairman of the uh, House Budget Committee uh, at a time when, uh, when deficits uh, were growing. Uh, and uh, the same problems existed at that, at that point. Uh, Republicans didn't want to raise taxes. Uh, Democrats didn't want to deal with uh, spending issues. And so uh, there was little action being taken uh, as deficits continued to increase. At some point, there was a recognition that if we allow those deficits to continue, we're going to face economic crisis. And so because of the leadership from Republicans and Democrats at the time, there was a willingness not only to take steps to control spending, but to raise taxes. Uh, and we did that uh, in a number of budget agreements that ultimately, by the way, uh, led to a balanced budget in this country. That was, that was a while ago. But it did achieve that goal. Um, I think the same thing is true here, that at some point uh, there will be a recognition that we are going to have to act uh, not just on taxes. We'll have to act on entitlements and other areas uh, in order to try to set uh, a better course for this country uh, in terms of dealing uh, not only with our national debt, which is now almost 78% of GDP, and likely to go to 150% of GDP on the present course, that at some point, the leadership of this country, Republican and Democrat, are going to have to recognize that they're going to have to take some tough decisions in order to put our democracy back on the right track. That's not going to be easy. It's going to require leaders that are willing to take risks. It's going to require leaders that could lose elections by virtue of doing it. But the history of this country is that over 200 years is that every time we have faced that kind of major crisis, leadership has been willing to rise to the occasion, and I'm hopeful that it will as well with our country. In the absence of movement in Washington, some people are looking to corporations. You know, corporations have supported the Paris Climate Accord. Corporations are have sustainability plans. You're on the board of Blue Shield California, one of the largest health insurers in the country. Does the board ever talk about climate as a health issue? You know, that's, a, that's an interesting issue uh, because, you know, while I'm sure that the people around that board table 
largely agree that climate is a problem. I'm not sure that we've ever kind of tied climate change to rising healthcare problems uh, in terms of the people. Warmer temperatures have disease vectors, exactly. heat deaths. Uh, Zika is coming north. Exactly. No, the movement of germs, of new diseases, uh, what we have found is that as a result of climate change, we are seeing more of that happening uh, and more threats arising as a result of that. The fact is that it does impact uh, on our health. I think there is a tie. Once we are able to really establish that connection, I think that's when people are going to suddenly, uh, it's one of those moments where the American people suddenly say, oh my God, uh, this is real in terms of affecting me, my life, and the children of my family. And when that happens, uh, there will certainly be a response, but I hope it's not too late. You uh, live on a walnut farm that your, your dad planted. You have six grandchildren. How will climate affect you and your family? Oh, I, I don't think there's any question. I mean, I, even in my own lifetime, I've seen uh, the change in the climate uh, affect our area. We are you know, Carmel Valley uh, was, uh, was, a, was a great place to live. Uh, my father and mother, uh, who lived in Monterey, went out to Carmel Valley. And I know the, one of the reasons they did was because there was a lot of fog along the coast. But inland in Carmel Valley, uh, it was a sunny area. Uh, today, very frankly, you don't see as much fog coming into Carmel Valley. It's much, it's much warmer. Uh, it's, it affects uh, uh, water supplies. It affects our ability to raise what we used to raise in, in the past more easily. Uh, it affects uh, the growth and shrubbery and mountain uh, greenery that we used to always enjoy there. Uh, it gets drier much faster, uh, and the result is that you get a fire hazard that's even much greater, and we see that, obviously, in California but we worry about that now uh, more than I think we ever have uh, in a place like Carmel Valley. Uh, I, you know, I, these things are happening. We're seeing what's happening in California. We're seeing what the fires are doing in California. We're seeing what droughts, uh, the impact that droughts can have uh, on our lifestyle. Uh, these things are real. And as I said, what is necessary more than ever is to understand that this is reality. It is what is happening. And that we cannot pretend that somehow uh, this is just uh, something that uh, uh, we've seen in the past and therefore shouldn't worry about. I think this is a fundamental issue that is affecting life itself. And, um, you know, I, at, at I'm by nature an optimist. You can't be in politics in this country and not be an optimist. I think, I think with enough people uh, continuing to talk about the impact, taking steps to deal with it, communities, corporations, others that uh, try to do what's right, I think that there will be a time when the world, as it tried to do in Paris, will in fact unify to confront this threat. Greg Dalton has been talking to Leon Panetta, 
who served as Secretary of Defense and Director of the CIA under President Obama. This is Climate One. Coming up, Greg talks to Admiral David Titley about climate change and military readiness. Readiness is the ability to make sure that when we put our sons and daughters, our soldiers, our sailors, our airmen and marines in harm's way to protect our nation's interests, that they are going to be successful at that even when the other guy is either metaphorically or literally shooting at us. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to a Climate One program about climate change and national security. We turn now to Greg Dalton's conversation with retired Rear Admiral David Titley, who served in the U.S. Navy for 32 years. He now teaches in the Department of Meteorology at Penn State University, where he also founded and directs the Center for Solutions to Weather and Climate Risk. Here again is your host, Greg Dalton. Norfolk, Virginia is home to 80,000 troops and the world's largest naval base. It's also experiencing crippling floods. So can you describe what, what's, what's happening there and what, what we know about um, what's happening in Norfolk? Well, sure. Well, Norfolk, as you mentioned, is a very large uh, military uh, installation in the United States. And it's actually not just the uh, Navy, the Air Force, Langley Air Force Base, one of the largest Air Force bases that service has, is also, uh, if anything, lower, believe it or not, in elevation than the Norfolk uh, Naval Base. So, And there's also extensive, uh, there's some Army and there's extensive Coast Guard, there's NOAA. It's really a federal city down there along with many differing uh, local uh, jurisdictions. Uh, Norfolk is fascinating sort of from a climate and oceanography uh, point of view as well, as it's kind of a hotspot, if you will, for sea level rise. Uh, in addition to, to the global sea level rise, which every time, you know, as we send climate scientists either to Greenland or Antarctica, we seem to up our predictions of, of what is the reasonable or even a worst case scenario over the next, let's say, 50 to 100 years. Uh, Norfolk also uh, tends to get ex- uh, increased sea level rise from from a combination of local effects. Uh, m- many of your listeners may have heard how the Gulf Stream appears to be slowing down. And that actually, one of the lesser known consequences of the Gulf Stream slowing down is the sea levels actually rise on the cold side. And that would be Norfolk. So they get a little extra boost from there. And then for reasons having nothing to do with climate change, the uh, the land on the mid-Atlantic coast, uh, certainly centered around Norfolk, Virginia, uh, Cape Hatteras, places like that, is, uh, is actually receding. And that's actually a consequence from the last ice age. But when you add all of those effects together, it's not unreasonable to plan for sea level rise, you know, four, five, six, even seven feet in, let's say, the next century in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, That's a lot. Uh, You know, one foot, two feet, we can probably deal with fairly well without, you know, and that's still a a long ways off if you said that's all it was going to be. But when you start talking these three, five, seven feet rises inside of a century, uh, those are very scary, and they're, they're frankly, they're hard for planners to imagine because we've never experienced that, it's certainly in modern times, but really in, in human civilization times. And some studies have suggested that there is up to 200 military bases around the country. They're threatened in one way or another by rising seas and climate change. Do we have a scope of the threat to U.S. military bases from climate? 
Yeah, I would say right now, honestly, the best work is probably being done by the Union of Concerned Scientists, and I believe that's the report you're uh, referencing. Uh, that report, among other things, uh, spurred the Congress in 2017 to actually put into the uh, defense, the annual defense uh, authorization uh, act, which was signed by President Trump, language that basically tells the Department of Defense, hey, you guys, this climate thing, it's a big deal and you need to pay attention to it. I mean, it says it in legal language, but that's basically what it says. And tell us your, I think it's top 10 bases for each service, so Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, tell us your 10 most threatened bases due to climate. And it doesn't have to be sea level. It could be running out of water. It could be freshwater flooding. It could be sustained excessive temperatures that preclude, uh, let's say, high-intensity training if that's the core mission for the base. Uh, the way I look at this, and actually the Australians did this about 10 years ago back when they were serious about this, uh, and, and just like in our country, their, their government's interest has waxed and waned on this issue. Uh, but when they were serious, uh, they actually kind of, kind of had a, you can imagine, like almost a, a very simple matrix, if you will, a two-by-two two matrix. And on one side of the matrix, it's sort of just vulnerability to climate change. And on the other side is uh, some, some quantification of military value of that base. And of course, where you would want to put your first dollar is where is the intersection, right? Where, where is the most vulnerable base with the highest military value? Uh, there no doubt are some bases with very high military value, but for whatever reason, uh, those particular localities may be less impacted by, by direct climate influences. So, you know, we probably shouldn't spend money there. But the ones that are very valuable from a military perspective and vulnerable from a climate perspective, I would argue, uh, if the Congress is looking for, you know, how to quantify, how to analyze of where to spend uh, money if they choose to do so, that that's the type of list you need. And that's what uh, certainly some organizations such as the Center for Climate Security and, and others are trying to help the Pentagon really think through. How will this affect where and how U.S. troops are deployed overseas? You're thinking of vulnerable bases. Guam comes up, uh, uh, Diego Garcia, bases in the Pacific that often support operations in Asia or even even the Middle East. You know, is there, how, will this affect where troops are deployed? Are they going to have to abandon certain bases and find new ones? I, I think the ones you would look at first that might be moved out of would be the ones that are really low-lying atolls. So, I mean, something I've asked the Pentagon is, has anybody really done a detailed uh, analysis of effective sea level rise? So it really includes global sea level rise plus whatever the, the local currents are doing plus that, that rise and fall of the land like we talked about with Norfolk. How does that look on Diego Garcia? Uh, because that's a very, very strategic uh, base. It's actually British. It's British Indian Ocean Territory. The Brits let us use it as long as we're nice to the birds and the fish and the turtles, so we are. Uh, and I would argue that just about every significant Department of Defense operation in Southwest Asia in the last 40 years has had critical support in one way or another come from Diego Garcia. I would look at that. Uh, the Air Force uh, uses some of the Marshall Islands like Kwajalein for, for both testing, uh, for their what they call their space fence, uh, which is this global 
uh, basically surveillance system that is looking up so that we, the United States, the United States military can basically track for all intents and purposes every object in space. And that's good. Uh, we, we need to do that for our defense. But we use some of those very low-lying atolls in the Pacific as key components of, of these kind of surveillance networks. And these are, again, places where, you know, details count, sort of like to paraphrase Tip O'Neill, all sea level rise is local. You know, so you need to, again, account for, you know, when we talk about climate vulnerability. Now, places like Guam, I mean, I was stationed out in Guam in the mid-1980s. I don't know if you've been out there or not, but it's actually quite volcanic. Uh, Although the upper, the northern half of the island is volcanic, the southern half, I think, is sort of raised limestone. But a lot of Guam is actually quite a bit above sea level. Like the really big Air Force Base there, Anderson Air Force Base, it's up on a raised plane. And, and there's quite dramatic cliffs right at the end of the runway that, you know, drop down into the into the water. But if they had a meter of sea level rise, Anderson Air Force Base on Guam is going to kind of like do a big yawn. It's just not going to impact them. Uh, there is a naval base there. Uh but it's, you know, and so some of that would be, would be affected. But again, the land kind of slopes upwards. So do you have to, you know, move the piers back and, and do some things like that, expand the breakwater? But I could see how Guam could be viable for, frankly, a long time. Uh, but these are, you know, these are the eaches. These are the kinds of analyses because there's no just one size fits all on these. And, you know, and this is, this becomes a lot of work. You really have to understand, you know, the local terrain, you have to understand what that base is really used for, what are the critical components, uh, how are broad trends such as sea level rise going to change, what gets harder to figure out, and we need to do the fancy term would be probabilistic. And what that basically means is, you know, we've got to kind of consider ranges of future scenarios to to figure out what what happens. But how do hurricanes and typhoons change? How does rainfall change? You know, understanding where does each one of these bases get their their drinking water from? Is that going to be under threat? Uh, are they going to have too much? Are we going to? Are is the is the real threat maybe not drought, but floods? and freshwater floods, and are we ready for those? So there's lots of, you know, none of this work is frankly particularly sexy. Uh, It's just kind of grunt work analysis, but it needs to be done, and it really needs to be done for all of these bases. And then, as I said, sort of cross, uh, cross-referenced cross with, with the intrinsic military value that we see today. And, you know, you could take the national security strategy or national defense strategy and say, well, in 20 years, you know, these, these bases, let's say, in the Western Pacific are, are critical in our competition with China or, or whatever. Uh, and, you know, and that's how you would then go and figure out which ones should we put money into in a, in a climate adaptation effort. And uh, as I said, I'm cautiously optimistic that actually this this administration does understand that. You know, you discount the tweets that come from the other side of the Potomac. Uh, but, but I think when you talk to many of the officials serving today in the Pentagon and senior military officers, they, they understand this is, this is one of the risks. And Secretary Mattis, of course, said that, right, at his confirmation hearing in, in the follow-up questions. He he 
fully understands that climate is one of, just one of the risks that the Pentagon must, uh, must anticipate, and his job as Secretary of Defense is to manage these risks. The Navy under former Secretary Ray Mabus was a leader with a great green fleet moving to alternative fuels, uh, renewable fuels uh, for fighter jets, that sort of thing. Has that continued or has that tapered off since the change in administration? Yeah, from what I can tell, I think there is maybe not as much momentum in that program as there had been under under Secretary Mabus's uh, leadership there. And I think some of those are frankly a tougher sell in the Pentagon. So all these things we've talked about, about you know adapting bases and making sure the base functions, when I'm in the Pentagon, I talk about this as what we would call, it's kind of a jargony term, but we call it readiness. And readiness is the ability to, at the end of the day, make sure that when we put our sons and daughters, our soldiers, our sailors, our airmen and Marines in harm's way to do the nation's uh, bidding, and to protect our nation's interests, that they are going to be successful at that even when the other guy is in either metaphorically or literally shooting at us. Uh, that's what readiness is. It's not just having tanks and ships and aircraft and you know shiny toys and military parades, but it's actually making sure that this stuff works and it works when it really, really needs to work. So this is what we need our, our bases to do. And that's why when I talk about the climate adaptation, people can understand it. Yeah, we need the base to keep doing that. Now, to your point to, to what Secretary Mabus was talking about and sort of the, the so-called green fleet and these biofuels, uh, it was a more difficult argument, in my opinion, to directly connect those types of biofuels to combat readiness. Uh, and some people will say, well, you know, we're, we get so much of our oil from, from the Middle East and we can grow biofuels. Well, you look at where, you know, w the United States is becoming one of the world's larger exporters right now of oil. Uh, we have domestic supplies, but if you're, let's say, the Navy and you're working in the Western Pacific, it's great that you have oil or biofuel or whatever, you know, be it in Nebraska or Texas or California or or Virginia, but you got to get it to the Western Pacific, or you've got to use friends or allies, be it Korea, be it Japan, you know, their source of, of fuel, and you still have to put it in a, in a Navy oiler or a United States military sea lift uh, command uh, combat oiler and get it out to be it the South China Sea or the, the Philippine Sea or wherever it is that you're working and refuel those aircraft. So whether it's traditional fossil fuel or whether it's biofuel, all those military risks are, are basically the same. Uh, so, so in that aspect, it was a hard stretch. Where the renewables really did gain traction, and I think they still have traction, are places like when either the Marines or the Army run uh, remote outposts, we used to call them forward operating bases. Uh, if you looked 15 years ago, let's say at the start of the 9-11 the wars, uh, those operating bases, every tent basically had its own diesel generator. Every piece of gear had its own diesel generator. We ran a whole ton of diesels to produce power. And of course, all those diesels require diesel fuel. Uh, so we would run these very big 
fuel convoys up through, you know, up through bad guy country, up through Afghanistan or Pakistan or even coming, you know, we kind of had a deal with Russia, believe it or not, and we would transship uh, some fuel through Russia and across the Central Asian states. I mean, this is like the Wild West. Uh, Needless to say, our adversary figured out that fuel was very important to us, so they targeted those fuel convoys. And many both contractors, foreign contractors, uh, U.S. contractors, and U.S. service women and men lost their lives defending those convoys. So if you could run those forward operating bases, let's say on solar or let's say on wind or efficient batteries or some kind of combination or just simply be more efficient, if you're directly connecting that renewable energy to decreasing the risk for American servicemen and women, increasing our combat effectiveness, the military's all in. The biofuels, you know, whether we run uh, a ship or whether we run uh, an FNA-18, a, a fighter, a Navy fighter jet on biofuel or regular fuel, and you get, you know, the same mileage, you get, let's say, the same performance, uh, that's a tougher argument to make that the Pentagon should be, should be leading in there. Climate change is personal for you. You lost your home in Hurricane Katrina and given a TED talk about that. As we look at this year with raging fires in the West, uh, scorching heat records across the country, what would you say to people who wonder, hmm, is this climate change or not? Is it going to affect me? You connect the, the, the extreme weather with the personal for people who are wondering this uh, this year? Yeah, I I tell people that, you know, I'm I'm a pretty simple person and I can only think in like things of three. So I sort of boil climate change down, no pun intended, uh, into three things. Uh, It's about people, it's about water, and it's about change. Uh, I'll tell you, when I bought my house in State College, I really looked quite hard at the elevation. We kind of live at the top of a hill. Uh, (laughs) I know that even if I got eight inches of rain, I know where it's going to go, and it's not going to be in my house. I wouldn't want to be downstream of me, but it's not going to be in my house. But if I was a city manager, I would look at, okay, if we have these catastrophic rains, well, maybe then rather than building that subdivision down at the bottom of the hill, maybe that should be be a marsh. Or maybe it was a marsh in the 1950s, but we put a parking lot or a strip mall on it. Well, maybe we should actually, when that comes to the end of its useful life, maybe it should go back to be a marsh again. So that if we have that really big rain or when we have those big rains, it'll sit in the marsh and it'll be a puddle and my, you know, the citizens will complain about mosquitoes for a couple days. But that's a whole lot better than being on the headlines of the news for a few hours because half a dozen of your citizens were tragically killed in a flash flood. Greg Dalton has been talking about climate change, military readiness, and U.S. national security with retired Rear Admiral David Titley, founding director of the Center for Solutions to Weather and Climate Risk at Penn State University. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea, Devin Strolovich, and Claire Schoen edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. 
Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.